All right, Larry Johnson, thanks for being on the show once again. Uh, you're always a wealth of knowledge, and there's so much going on right now. And one of the things that I've been contemplating recently is what do people not get about the conflict uh, in Ukraine, uh, the, the proxy war, we can call it in Ukraine, against, well, the Western nations, NATO and Russia, or the BRICS nations, Um I've never before seen, I guess I would call it cognitive dissonance, or let's just call it um, people really, their entire worldview and opinion on the conflict, if they're aware of it at all, is propaganda, bias, and narrative. It, it's not based on any reality whatsoever. It seems that uh, I'm just surprised that too many people that I know really put if they put any effort whatsoever into understanding the conflict, um, even a Google search, they would have at least some knowledge of what's going on. But right now, I I've never seen such a, a carpet bombing of narrative propaganda and bias. Uh, I've never seen the American people myself in my you know short 53 years as disconnected from a conflict or from reality or from what's going on as right now. So does, do, does that sound like yeah. Uh, anything that you're seeing? <laughs> the narrative that people choose to believe defines what they see. Mm. So I, I like to come at it what I call the, the man from Mars perspective. So imagine that you arrive on Earth without any preconceived notion. You know nothing about Ukraine. You know nothing about Russia. And you just sit down and look at the objective facts. Uh, that's how I approach it. But that's not how the West approaches it. The West narrative starts from the premise that uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, the reincarnation of Joseph Stalin. That Vladimir Putin is intent on restoring the Soviet Empire. Now right there you have a lie. The quote, Soviet Empire implies that during the time of the Soviet Union, it was regularly invading countries around the world and uh, establishing uh, control, like, say, in Africa. But it had no colonies in Africa. Uh, it didn't put any military presence in Southeast Asia, except it was providing aid to Vietnam during the Vietnam War, where the United States was attacking Vietnam. Uh, it went into Afghanistan, absolutely. Afghanistan was right on its border, and it was dealing with, surprise, surprise, an Islamic insurgency. So, you know, we were outraged at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, <laughs> where they were trying <laughs> to support a secular government. Then we turned around and did the same damn thing, and we stayed there for 20 years. Yeah. So, um, Nate, the, the whole issue of NATO is involved with this. You know, with the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, the, the, the Russians, first under Yeltsin, then under Putin, made at least two attempts to join NATO. Each time they were rebuffed by the Western powers. Well, why? Because if Russia joins NATO, the entire reason for NATO goes away. NATO existed primarily to fend off the threat of a feared invasion by the Soviet Union of Western Europe. And it sort of ran with that scam for, you know, 50, 60 years, or let's say from 49, so roughly 40, 45 years until the Soviet Union collapsed. And then it's like, now what do we do? Oh, we're, we're a security organization, so we're going to promote global security. And to that extent, we're going to conduct military exercises every year on the border of Russia with Ukraine, carrying out what anybody in Russia with a, you know, half a brain would look at and say, they're preparing to attack us. So again, against all of that backdrop and concept, we then have the Maidan coup in February of 2014. That was a coup backed by and carried out with the support of the U.S. intelligence agencies and British intelligence agencies. And the extent that as a result of that coup and then the installation of Western uh, friendly politicians, a war was launched against the people of the Donbass 
the Russian-speaking people of the Donbass, and Russia came to their aid. Now, I think Russia, Russia used an intelligence cutout like the Wagner Group to provide aid, but there were also members of the Ukrainian military that had defected and went over to the side of the people of Donetsk and Luhansk to fight mm. against uh, the Nazis that were, had taken over in Kiev. So, but, but, you know, all of that context, nuance, it makes no difference. The, the United States is perpetuating the lie that the West, that Ukraine is the aggrieved party in this, that Ukraine was just minding its own business, you know, standing on the street corner, you know, playing music, and mm -hmm. the nasty Russians attacked them for nothing. I mean, it's a lie. But uh, what you discover is once people buy into that, no amount of facts will shape their view. No, it's very true. And it, it just, uh, when we look at the statesmanship right now, there really isn't any. And I think that's something that I think people in the West misunderstand also. There's a, a book that I recently, uh, I'm going to have to order it on Amazon, but it's the uh, Kennedy Gorbachev letters. And it's the uh, recently uh, uh, found or uncovered, released letters between you know Kennedy and Gorbachev, where they had a kind of a, a secret, you know, they were kind of Kennedy and Khrushchev. I'm sorry, Kennedy and Khrushchev. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I thought I didn't know that Robert F. Kennedy was writing <laughs> letters to Gorbachev. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so got my Kennedys and. And, and Russian leaders wrong, but yeah. And so that's one that I definitely want to check out because I've heard excerpts of it and I've heard it referenced. And when you look at that, how they were giving each other a hard time, they had this sort of, you know, kind of secret pen pals basically. And when I look at just from what I've heard already referenced the statesmanship, they could argue, but respectfully, and they even gave each other a hard time. It was kind of like a, a Shakespearean play, very gaudy, they, they didn't pull any punches, but there was actually statesmanship going on. And I think that's something that we're definitely lacking now. And I oh, yeah. it, it made me go back to listen to the, uh, I think it's it's on YouTube. It's um, Kennedy's peace speech. It's the, the, the famous one. And when I listened to that the other night, I was just beside myself listening to that and then listening to, uh, you know, President Biden, who, you know, I just thought he was a little bit old, a little bit lost at first. But in, in the recent week or so, I've realized that, I mean, uh, he's not capable of any statesmanship at this point whatsoever. So right. I feel I feel like we're in a Western world. We're here in America and we don't have any statesmanship other than um, always forward, push, 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 war or else. It just seems like we're um as uh, as the duran puts it you know no reverse gear and that's right. kind of worrying to me because no statesmanship single-mindedness um we won't stop until we accelerate this conflict into what something nuclear or we get other nations involved but it doesn't seem like we have any restraint within our government at this time well yeah uh, with that there yeah. is uh, there's a tremendous underestimation and a dismissal of Russian capabilities, uh, and, and it's not it's not just the Biden administration. You're hearing it from a whole host of people. Uh, yes, and, and, and it's uh, what they're running off of is the, the you know, it's the effectiveness of U.S. Western propaganda. So they've they've painted Russia number one as still basically. Uh, a vestige of the Soviet Union, and that they're communists and that they're godless. I mean, I, I read, I, I skewered uh, an American-born Irishman uh, by the name of O'Brien, who now is a professor at the University of St. Andrew in Scotland. And uh, Tucker Carlson made the point in one of his recent rants that a lot, uh, that one of the foundations of this animus towards Russia is really based in an anti-Christian yes. uh, uh, bias. And this guy O'Brien, oh, that's ridiculous. Russia is the least religious country in the world. Okay, going back to the Soviet Union. Well, but very quickly I was able to, you know, 
didn't have to be a Google expert to figure this out. Uh, I was able to search and, and, and discover that, uh, you know, Russia's got like 60%, 70% of uh, people admitting to being Christian, Eastern Orthodox. And here this O'Brien is living in uh, uh, Scotland, and there it's about one in three. So, I mean, his statement was just factually wrong. But yet, there he is. He's recognized as an expert. He's saying things that are just provably wrong, and, but, but gets away with it. So they portray Russia as this uh, group of uh, atheists uh, who are still communists, uh, who have no rule of law. It's a rule of terror. Uh, that they've been invading other countries. So, you know, that's all they do. Even though the only country in the world that has been consistently, regularly invading other countries is the United States. Not Russia, not China, it's the United States. Just ask the people in Vietnam, and in Iraq, and in Syria, and in Afghanistan, and in Panama, and in the Dominican Republic, and in Somalia. You know, let's just keep going down the list. And in Serbia, so, yeah. and Syria. So, you know, spare me the sanctimony the Western sanctimony, because it's it's really it, it, it's it's gotten to the point that it's intolerable, uh, because it's so divorced from reality, and within this whole narrative again, they portray the Russian military as a bunch of guys who are on the who are in the army because they got a gun to their head, they are being forced there to serve. They're not like the Ukrainians who are fighting for democracy. These are just Russians who have no sense of national honor. You know, it's ridiculous. The fact that Russia sees itself as facing an existential threat from not just Ukraine, but the entirety of NATO, with the West openly supporting and providing intelligence used to attack and kill Russian civilians. The supply of all sorts of military equipment. and the assistance of intelligence organizations and Western fighters that are uh, attacking and trying to kill Russians. They think that Russia doesn't view this as an existential threat where Russia, unlike the United States, has actually faced some major invasions over the course of its history. You know, the, the United States has lived with this luxury that we've been safe behind two oceans. And uh, our only danger is our, ourselves, you know, through our drug addiction and moral depravity mm -hmm. but but we fail we fail to recognize that Russia is fighting for something that we don't even understand and our failure to understand that I think runs a real risk of a miscalculation yeah and I think one of the things that people that I see out of style with you know I guess I'm not that old but I, I just 53 but I'll just say younger people is um, that I talk to is they really have a disdain for nationalism. I think that's one of the things that Russia is is fighting for uh, is nationalism, is that sovereignty and uh, also uh, orthodoxy. Um, uh, in the first week of October, going to have uh, Joseph Farrell on and um, I've talked to him some about it already, uh, but we're going to do a show about it where it, it really gets into the West's uh, issue with orthodoxy with with the church uh, in uh, Russia, and so and he uh, he really goes deep with the history and such. So that's going to be a, a great show. But even from just talking to him some beforehand, there's definitely a war on orthodoxy. And the, and if you mention this to people, I mean, uh, Russia is not the the nation right now that is seizing church assets right and and arresting clergy and which ukraine is doing right you know and so it's you know once again it's just the uh reality is kind of broken the the truth uh has now become like gravity has now become a conspiracy theory right right yeah, yeah. and so another thing i wanted to ask you about was um uh uh, I always get his name messed up, uh, Prigozhin. Yeah, Prigozhin. And so, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the leader of all well, the, who was the leader of Wagner. And well, 
let's correct that. Le okay, he yeah. Was, he was not the leader of Wagner. He was okay. the front. He was the front guy. Front guy. He was the promoter. He gotcha. was not a military guy. He was not the manager. He ran the contract. But the contract was with the Ministry of Intelligence, uh, the GRU. So, but, and, but that's a common Western misperception that you know, Prigozhin was Wagner and he was directing it and running it. No, nonsense. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, it, it's good to clarify. I always like to define terms, and, and, and that's a very good thing. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, and the general consensus is, well, obviously, Putin took him out, but I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I, I, I at least think that there's it's more complicated than that simple story. And when I look at the, the timing of it, uh, it doesn't seem like anybody is questioning how... Well, yeah, obviously, uh, superficially, a person might think, okay, yeah, well, Putin got even. But I think that's a pretty unsophisticated view of a very complex issue. Yeah, yeah. No, I, look, um, people say uh, Putin wanted Prigozhin dead. Okay, then th that would imply that Putin has some control over the timing and the place. He's already yeah. got the motive, so timing and place. So why does he choose to, you know, take him out on an airplane flight in Russia, which doesn't kill just Prigozhin, kills at least three members of the flight crew who have nothing to do with Prigozhin, who are innocent. That's number one. You know, that's not Putin's style. Uh, he, number two, he kills him, uh, supposedly kills him on the very day that he's doing uh, the commemoration of the Soviet victory over the Nazis in the Battle of Kursk. Well... If you're killing Prigozhin, that takes the that celebration and ceremony off the front page. Uh, then you've got uh, Sergei Lavrov at the BRICS meeting. And uh, again, uh, this distracts from the Russian leadership in, in that movement. So it just, it did make sense from the timing, number one. Uh, number two, there are plenty of other motives, including... Uh, you know, Air Force personnel who on a personal vendetta wanted to kill Prigozhin uh, for the role that Wagner played in killing some of their colleagues during the failed mutiny on 24th of June. But uh, there's also the possibility that the aircraft was just sabotaged mm -hmm. or through, through poor maintenance because the wings came off. That, that's what, when you look at it, that it does not look like there was explosives in the in the wheel well that would have left some blast marks and some residue and some jagged fragments. Uh, the, the wheel, the, the wing just peeled off. And when that wing, wing came off, that plane lost all of its aerodynamic capability. Uh, losing the wing like that may have punctured a hole in the aircraft that caused it to depressurize, but not catastrophically, but still depressurized enough that it lost consciousness thing plunged to earth and crashed. It was intact except for the wings. You can see the images uh, on some of the, on the video that the lady took on the ground. So, mm. you know, he was, Prigozhin was first and foremost an intelligence asset of the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence. Uh, he served their purpose. Uh, his, his activities was not confined to just fronting for the Wagner group. He is also the, the manager for the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, which does information operations around the world for the GRU. Uh, and he was also a contractor supplying food. So, uh, you know, it's very it's also possible that just people inside Wagner who were uh, upset with him, feeling that the, he betrayed him, they could have gotten rid of him. But the notion that Putin did it, I, I think, is far-fetched. Yeah, I think that you know, it would be good if people at least considered other possibilities, you know, because for one thing, I think if he really wanted to, if Putin, let's say, or let's say the, you know, the Russian military uh, had really taken the, 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 the mutiny, I would say like the, the staged mutiny, um, seriously, they had their opportunity to just wipe him out. Yeah, yeah. It just seems... Yeah, but they didn't. So, and I think that I think Putin knew that that would not have been good for the nation, you know. And 
that would have caused you know civil unrest probably because you know uh, Prigozhin is somewhat her a her heroic figure there in Russia. I mean, people do like him, I do believe, and so it would not have served. So it just seems like it goes it goes against any common sense when it comes to statesmanship to actually take him out. It do, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, Putin wanted to kill him. Why didn't he kill him when he was in his office? Yeah, taking a gun out, shot him in the head, or gone, you know, like Robert De Niro in that movie Capone, you know, The Untouchables, where he had the he had the group assembled around the table and he's carrying a baseball bat and says, "Oh, we got to work as a team," and everyone's going, "Yeah, team!" And then De Niro <laughs> clubs, you know, clocks some guy over the head and beats him bloody. Yeah, Putin could have did that, done that, but he didn't. So, yeah, you know, if the, again, if the purpose is killing. Prigozhin and make it an example of him. You kill him in a way and say, anybody that crosses me, this is what happens to you. Uh, exactly. You know, it goes down in an airplane crash when there are other things going on. It just, uh, again, I, I don't put a lot of stock in that explanation. Yeah, I kind of, I had a feeling when the, uh, you know, march towards Moscow, you know, first started, I thought, well, in a few days, he's going to be shaking hands with Putin, or he's going to be hanging in front of the Kremlin. <laughs> you know, one of the two. And he was shaking hands with Putin. So yeah, yeah. It, it seems like like it had already been resolved. And um, so one of the things that I'm, you know, sensing when I look at the, what I see from the, I'll say the Western media right now, is something that's becoming more and more apparent is that um, Russia and the BRIC nations as a whole right now in this conflict, it's almost like you've got like there's like poker is being played. And so at a certain point, you know, when, when the person who it doesn't matter what their hand is, if they got enough of a pot, they just keep putting money in and everybody gets scared and they have to fold. And it seems like that's the moment that we're at right now, where it just seems like the BRIC nations in Russia, you can say maybe Russia and China, they're, they're the main ones, the main players right now. But of course, people are joining like Saudi Arabia and such. And there's so many fronts this is being fought on, you know, currency, uh, commodity or gold backed currency is one of them. But it just it seems that the hand that the uh, BRIC nations have right now um, it seems like one by one we're going to see the European nations and event and eventually uh, America just have to fold. Well, the, the world is changing. Yes. So, so the world that existed, immediate that was created by the United States, with the collaboration of the surviving European countries, was a, a world economic order that the United States controlled. Initially, we controlled through. Our, our, our currency was dollar was based on, on gold, but then in '72, when we went off the gold standard, still the U.S. dollar became the international reserve currency, and we set up the United Nations, we set up the World Bank, we set up the International Monetary Fund, and we set up the World Trade Organization, all to quote facilitate free trade, and in the process facilitate the U.S. enable U.S. control over the financial activity of the, of the world. And you know, even though we were competitors with the Soviets during the Cold War, the Soviets were nowhere near anywhere economically in a position to challenge us. Same for China. So in 72, when Nixon goes to China, opens up and establishes the one China policy where essentially we acknowledge Taiwan is going to be part of China, that started an economic boom for China, where it began to grow industrially and, and, and across the board. Uh, and that also sort of marked the high water point for the United States, where it started shedding its industrial capability, moving it overseas, moving it to Mexico and into Asia. So, you know, now we've had, we've had this whole economic structure where We've got to pretend that we're the number one guy. Um, it's, it's a little bit like, the, you know, the United States is like the Rocky movies, you know, with mm -hmm. Sylvester Stallone, and in his, in his youth and as a prime man, great boxer. Now we're in our 70s, 80s, we're overweight, we're not in good, great shape, but yet we're still trying to pretend like we're that 20-year-old uh, boxer. No, we're not. So... We try to impose sanctions on Russia. We're going to hurt Russia. 
Sanctions only work if you, the person opposing the sanctions, have majority control over the resource or product that you're sanctioning. But we're trying to cut Russia off from the dollar. We don't have majority control or unilateral control over that. And in fact, the, the notion that only oil could be sold in dollars is mm. rapidly proven not to be true. And so uh, what, what Russia, what happened with the imposition of sanctions, what started last year in February of uh, 2022, was the beginning of the end of the U.S. dominance of the international world order. And we saw further evidence that over this weekend with the failure of the U.S. at the, at the uh, G20 conference to, to get the outcome it wanted to isolate Russia, to punish Russia. It was just the opposite. And, you know, what's happened, the, the G20 was set up, oh, 22 years ago as just another extension for the United States to control not just the, the key countries in Europe, key countries in Asia, uh, but uh, it, was, it was then also to sort of keep Russia at bay. Well, now they hold this meeting, China and Russia blow it off. There's mm. other foreign ministers, but neither Xi nor Putin will attend. Uh, Xi attended BRICS. Putin was unable to attend BRICS, but he showed up via teleconference. So what, what you have with BRICS right now is the global south clamoring to join. You've got nations lined up. So you've already got Saudi Arabia, and it looks like United Arab Emirates is going to come in. And then Argentina is coming in. And then uh, on, on top of it, uh, you, you're going to have potential Turkey. Turkey mm -hmm. wants to get in. Iran's in. So you've got all of these countries which are really antithetical to the United States interests coming together in a, in a, in a unified fashion. I, I would not be surprised to see North Korea at some point become a member of BRICS. Mm -hmm. That be, you know, that'll be the, the ultimate expression of telling the United States to go pound sand. So yeah. throughout this process now, the United States is no longer in a position to control the world. Our ability to dictate economic outcomes is, is very limited. And we, you know, the war, in Iraq, the war in Ukraine has exposed that uh, because the Ukrainians need, uh, you know, they need roughly, uh, I would say, at least 100,000, 200,000 uh, 155 millimeter artillery shells a month. United States can only produce 30,000. I, actually, I think it's like 19,000 right now per month, but they may be able to get it up to 30,000. They can't come anywhere close. Ditto, same thing for Europe. Europe's talking about, oh, well, we're going to have to uh, get our industry to crank up. What industry? They, they, they got rid of their steel plants in the, in the United Kingdom in particular. It's just, it, it's ridiculous. They, they have, in, in the pursuit of green energy, they've gotten rid of key industries where they're no longer able to actually make things and sustain themselves. And they're going up against Russia and China, who are two of the global giants when it comes to industrial capability. Yeah. And, and that gets back to, you know, America definitely has the most expensive military in the world. But, you know, what wins, um, what wins wars is the stuff that's not sexy. It's artillery and bayonets and bullets and landmines. You know, it, it's these, it's this very boring, low-profit stuff that I don't think Russia forgot. It seems like they remembered World War II, but America, they just don't seem to understand that. You know, uh, an F-35 is great, but it's just one, you know, SAM missile and it's over. Yeah. You know, so great. That's cool. <laughs> you know, send a bunch of them. They won't, they won't last very long. Um, and yeah, you're very right where you've got like Rocky at set, like, uh, you know, this is like now Rocky, you know, episode 75 and, yeah. uh, he's like 70 plus years old and he thinks he's a uh, John Wick in his prime. <laughs> and that's just it's not, not quite, it's not, it's not going to work out that way. And one of the things about sanctions is I feel like we're living in a time right now where the sanctions have been turned inward. Because I think a lot of the, well, for one thing, the interest rates. Now, 
you know, it's unfortunate that the Fed controls the economy in the way it does and the banks do. This is all the market is what it is. But um, in it's an impossible situation, but still in raising the interest rates. And my guess is they'll probably continue. You know, the sanctions have been turned inwards. So to get the you know hyperinflation down, which I think is obvious if anybody's looking that we're I think we're suffering from hyperinflation. Anybody who buys things would probably notice that, that, you know, raising the Fed, raising interest rates is, you know, not everyone understands that that basically crushes the middle class until they're still so destitute that, yes, inflation does come down. But that's that's a tremendous amount of heavy handed suffering. Um inflicted on the American people. So I don't know. I think that the sanctions, they may be outwards, but one way or the other, I feel like they're now also inwards. If nothing else, it's just a result of the failed outward sanctions to try to keep the economy moving. Well, uh, we don't have a single example of sanctions working to force, coerce a change in another government's structure or policy. We don't. Uh, go back to Cuba. You know, we've imposed sanctions to punish Cuba and to get rid of Fidel Castro. Well, that didn't work. Yeah, we ruined their economy because they didn't have any great alternatives. They weren't controlling, uh, you know, the, most of the world's natural resources. Well, that's not the case with Russia. We impose sanctions on Russia. They don't need a damn thing from the United States or Europe. Not one thing. They can live without Starbucks. They can live without Burger King or McDonald's. They don't need it. Dunkin' Donuts don't need it. Uh, uh, you know, Starbucks definitely don't need it. You know, so <clears throat> they're the number one country in the world in terms of natural resources, including gas, uh, oil, fertilizer, uranium, nickel, uh, aluminum. Uh, gold, you know, just go down the list. They've got other rare earth minerals besides that. So they don't need the West for anything. Uh, up to this point, Russia, well, up to a year ago, two years ago, Russia was content to be an importer of Western luxury goods, and the West was more than happy to sell it to them. But now Russia is awakened to the fact, we don't need these Westerners. We'll make our own shoes, our own clothes, our own cars, our own planes. They make everything they need there. Uh, they're sort of like an Amish farm on steroids. You know, They don't need the outsider to come in to keep them alive. But in the process, too, they've now forged relationships with China and Iran and other countries that are uh, in South Africa, uh, Brazil, that the United States is becoming isolated, not, not, not uh, Russia. In fact, what's interesting is in a recent speech that uh, Tony Blinken gave uh, mm -hmm. in Kiev, where he talked about they got 29 countries that are going to be involved in supporting Ukraine. Well, I could show you a, a, a speech by, it was either Lloyd Austin or Mark Milley, uh, last September, a year ago. I wish they met in Germany with 40 nations that were there to support Ukraine. Huh. Well, we've lost 11 somewhere along the line, okay? The number, the number that are backing U.S. policy are shrinking. And that's, you know, that's a fact of reality the United States needs to come to grips with. And yeah. the U.S. has been unable to use sanctions. You know, look at the sanctions that have applied on Iran. What changes in Iranian behavior has that produced? None. Same for Syria. Same for Russia. You know, so it's just, and Saudi Arabia. We imposed some sanctions on Saudi Arabia. All that's doing is just pissing these countries off, making them less likely to want to have anything to do with the United States. And it forces them to, I'm not sure if the word force is correct. I would say that it, it entices them. It As a matter of survival and just their well-being, uh, planning for a future, they want to get away from a currency that can be turned off, um, and that's the thing. Yeah. I think I think the world started changing in uh, in the uh, uh, Canadian trucker uh, 
strike basically where they started to go after people by a you know a cell phone location and closing their bank accounts i think that's when i think the world started changing rapidly because people realized that okay i get it and i think that uh, especially with america you say like the west sanctioning um when the swift system is turned off it, it to a nation if they not even it's not a matter of pissing off if you don't do everything the west or america asks you to whether it's in your country's best interest or not you're just turned off so how can any nation really be looking towards the future and be planning on staying in the swift system it, it because eventually you'll piss america off it's it like india for instance i mean i know that there's a lot of pressure on India right now to you know align with the West when it comes to the Ukraine conflict but India can't they're in a very precarious situation I think they have to probably look maybe past the current moment look long term and realize that our future is with the BRICS really yeah. uh, because this you know we've already pissed America off they'll punish us later or eventually so it seems like that's the thing about the sanctions it's 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 really it's quite the double-edged sword. It did work, or let's, let's say it had some, the appearance of a positive effect for some time, but now, uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. It, it, it appeared, it, it appeared to us that it was working here in the West. Yeah, that, just, that, it made us feel good. Like we were doing something. Yeah. But, but the reality was it did not show, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to this. Cite me one historical yes. example, one country, where we've imposed sanctions, and it's turned out that it produced the result that we wanted. I, I, let's go back to prior to World War II, we imposed the sanctions on Japan. Mm -hmm. What did that produce? Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So, not exactly the outcome we were looking for. And it makes us look like monsters in many yeah. ways, where well, you, you well, look at, yeah, that was, was that Madeleine Albright that was, was asked about the, uh, the half million you know, dead Iraqi, Iraqi children. children. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and she looked demonic. If I, if anybody watches this clip, I'll put it in the show notes. She just looks like something straight out of hell, you know? And she's asked, well, do you think it was worth it? And she's like, yeah, what monster can say that? Yeah. It just, and so the world, this is the thing I think what maybe people in the West or America aren't realizing is that the world is watching the things that we're not. Yeah. Well, this, they, they, they see the hypocrisy. They see the gap between what we claim to believe and what we do. You know, we claim that we're all about democracy and freedom and the right to choose. And then we do everything in our power to suppress the, the ability of people to choose and to exercise freedom. And, and that's, you know, that's what's being exposed in this war in Ukraine. That, that it's really the limits of U.S. power now. And... Uh, you know, we insist that uh, we're, we're against religious persecution, except we're supporting Zelensky, who is persecuting priests and confiscating, taking control of churches, kicking nuns out of their convents. You know, that's not America. Uh, yeah. It, it, he's shutting down opposition political parties. Well, America's acting like that now. We're trying to shut down anybody that supports Donald Trump. Uh, they're shutting down opposition newspapers. Well... That's sort of an American value now, too, uh, in terms of all the social media uh, censorship that's gone on with the full encouragement of the Biden administration. So, you know, it, it, the, the Ukrainians understand that, you know, the United States is actually more like Ukraine than we want to admit. And America's in this denial where we refuse to acknowledge what we have become. We've become the equivalent of what the Soviet Union was in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, mm. a, a rigid uh, country with leadership that belongs in nursing homes. Yeah, and, and also we'll say that um, the Russian military is nothing but conscripts, you know, people forced to be there. But right. what we're seeing in Ukraine, if one cares to look, is, you know, I find it just absolutely tragic, you know, the 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 forcibly you know grabbing people off the street you know and then also that ends up as it appears it may end up being you know kids at a certain point and old men at a certain right. point and it, like we're getting there and i think that's just 
a horrible crime. It's a horrible crime against humanity. It's terrible. Um, and then now, of course, one of the things that gets me about the situation is, like, if America was attacked, let's just say, you know, the, the Mexican cartels and the military decided to, like, Ozitlan, we're going to take, you know, Southern uh, California and New Mexico and Arizona. Um, once, well, I'm sure our government would probably stand down, but basically once the American people got pissed off, we'd probably clear cut everything to Guatemala, you know, and yeah. if you attack us, we'll kick your ass. Um, even if our government doesn't want us to, you know, um, it'd just be a trail of freaking shotgun shells all the way south. You know, the thing is, um, one of the things that gets me is the uh, exodus of Ukraine right now. Uh, people that I know in Croatia are like, my gosh, there's so many people from Ukraine here. There's people from Ukraine here in Arizona. There's this exodus of fighting age males, you know, from Ukraine. Wow. And that kind of pisses me off because I'm like, hey, wait a second. If this is a, if my if my country was attacked, I'd be fighting. So why is everybody fleeing? I understand that women, children, old, I get it. But there's too many fighting age men that are that Ukraine is now going out and looking for. So what's what's up with that? Well, again, the, the narrative about what Ukrainians mm -hmm. are fighting for is not true. Uh, this, yeah. is not a, this is not a battle for democracy against imperialism. Uh, you know, there are enough Ukrainian uh, youth and, and, and people in, in military age that understand that this entire conflict was was an effort to suppress and destroy and eradicate all things Russian. Yet the majority, even of these people, the Ukrainians are still there. They speak Russian, not Ukrainian. So it's just, you know, they're trying to, they're, they're trying to erase their roots. And you can't do that. I mean, they just, you know, human nature will, will not tolerate that. And that's why people are voting with their feet. It's going to be interesting to see if, um, the roundup that takes place in places like, you know, will Pol the Polish, the Germans, uh, the Italians, the Romanians, will they be able to gather up uh, the Ukrainian men of military age and force them back to Ukraine? But even if they get them back to Ukraine and they get into a uniform, they're going to be sent right back to those countries because they cannot be trained in Ukraine. Otherwise, they'll be killed before they get out of training because the Russians and target every training center in Ukraine. So yeah. they'll, be, you know, they'll be going back to Poland, Germany, the UK to get trained uh, for a, a brief period. And then they'll be thrown into the meat grinder and they'll be killed. Yeah, and it's one of, one of the things that we hear about a lot now is just how they're not getting a lot of training, not like the, the, the time actually training is, is not that great. And I definitely understand that, you know, there's not the lengthy training that should take place. But one of the things that I think nobody tends to mention is how, like I was in the military for a while and yeah, sure. You can go to boot camp and you can go to your, you know, a school as we called it. You can, you can do all of that, but it takes years to be a soldier. I think it's one of the things that's being missed is that uh, it, you need years to be in the military after you were trained to actually be part of, like for me, I was in a, the way we broke it down was by battalion. Battalion's about 600 people. There's four companies in a battalion. And you need to be in that battalion for a couple of years to know what you're doing. So I think really any soldiers that are sent that haven't been in the military three to five years or even a year, um, it's not going to work. Well, an example of that, take it from uh, Hollywood, uh, Band of Brothers, that, that was based upon the book of the 101st Easy Company and 101st Airborne. Uh, they began, they assembled in Georgia in, in the summer of 1942. They went through training through 1943, and then they were deployed to uh, England. And it was not until June of '44 that they actually went into combat. Mm. And even then, when they, even though they had had uh, close to two years of training, by the time they went into combat, they were still raw, and they had a lot to learn. And they learned it in the course of actual fighting. Uh, so you don't get that kind of experience by taking somebody, putting through 
you know, 12 weeks of basic, 13 weeks of basic, and then, you know, another try to do two or three months of advanced individual training, and then boom, hey, go get it. Because that's not even what Ukraine's doing. Ukraine is giving guys five weeks of instruction, and then they're throwing them out on the front lines. And a lot of those guys, some of them are my age. Which, mm. You know, uh, I'm in pretty good shape for, you know, being 68, but, uh, you know, still can't do what 20-year-olds can do. Yeah, and also somebody who, you know, does not want to be there, who was, you know, forced one way or the other to be there, it's not going to make a very strong military. I, I don't yeah. think, I, I, I myself am not, unless it's an absolute dire situation, I... I'm not even sure that I don't, I do not really think drafting, especially what Ukraine is doing right now really works. Yeah. It's, it's not going to work. Um, if, if people don't want to be there, you're not going to have the morale to fight. Um, and so there's just two more things I wanted to, wanted to ask you about. I've had you for a while. And one is, um, so somebody I know, uh, he's got a great YouTube channel. It's called Forgotten uh, Battlefields and it's a Tino of Unstruckman and great character friend of mine been on the show. We've spent many hours talking about stuff. And he recently went to Ukraine uh, to do some research uh, on, well, battlefields and, and, and forts and uh, the national life. He was all over the place. Um, great YouTube channel. Great historian. Great archaeologist. And one of, so I definitely trust him. But, but one of the things he was talking about when he returned was that uh, he was saying that he was referencing that he had seen evidence of a lot of extreme brutality and i need to ask him about this to get more specific i really need to know exactly what he saw when he's talking about but he was really he really felt that the russian troops and i'm not sure if he really was specific about he said the elite troops is what he referenced but a lot of brutality towards civilians and i don't doubt him it's just that i have not seen that that, that, that the russians are killing civilians yeah and well, I just have, it, I, I have, it's yeah. real simple. I mean, it's real simple. Where's the social media? That's exactly what I was thinking. Where's it's Telegram? Not, you know, it does. I mean, it's it, Instagram, TikTok. So, it, you know, everybody's got smartphones. That is one of the propaganda lies that's been put out because the only side that has been consistently targeting civilians has been the Ukrainian side. That, I mean, it, it's, you know, they're, they're sending both the, now the cluster munitions and before the high mars we're hitting civilian areas not military targets yeah you know the russians have actually the, the number of civilians killed in the course of russian military operations compared to previous wars compared to look at what the united states killed in iraq the number of civilians the number of civilians we killed in afghanistan that just dwarfs anything that the russians have done so no, I, I, I ascribe that all to sort of the propaganda, uh, the propaganda campaign. Uh, now, uh, one, one, one comment, though, about the casualties. The, uh, I think the, the scope of these casualties, there, there's uh, solid information that came out that as of like last November, Ukraine had suffered 372,000 killed in action. Since then, I, I would estimate they have had at least another 200,000 if not more. So their, their number of killed in action could be in excess of 600,000, which is a phenomenal number. But that is, uh, and, and I think you're seeing some indications of that because Zelensky was just being interviewed by one of the CIA, uh, CNN correspondents. Uh, I think it was a Sanjay Gupta maybe. And he was talking, basically he was, he was admitting that they've lost. They have lost, the, this was not a happy ending of this counteroffensive, but no kidding. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the casualties, the, the cost of the casualties is starting to s settle in on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, and yeah, so I'll try to, I, one of the things I'm working on doing is getting Tino on the show to talk about his well, trip to you, Ukraine and such, and just to drill down on what he, the evidence that he saw, because um maybe he did but the thing i that's very important to me is if such things have happened it, it kind of comes down to at what level of the command structure is that happening 
I mean, there could be a, like for me, I was in a battalion at 600 people. There's, and that, that, that's divided into four companies. And you could have bad leadership at a certain level that was allowing or promoting, but that's a huge, and that's wrong. They should all just hang them, shoot them, really. Um, but that, it just goes, uh, it, it doesn't match everything that I've seen. And I spend probably too much time watching this, but as you're saying, um, if he was seeing, or if it exists, if there's video of it, if there's evidence of it, um, why is it, why is it under wraps? I, I just don't, I have a hard time. I, I need to get Tino on and say, yeah, why isn't this on everything from TikTok to Instagram, to YouTube, to Rumble, to why isn't, I mean, if that existed and someone could get their hands on it, that would be on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox tonight. Oh, yeah. No, so I'm just sure. sort of like, yeah, yeah, if it exists, get it out there, you know, because if it happened, it happened. But it doesn't seem to match reality. It does seem like if it was to have happened, it would have been a specific event by a bad command. And, and yeah, not. I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that there couldn't have been some abuses by uh, yeah. Russians, uh, the Russian troops, and, as there have been documented abuses by Ukrainian troops. Yes. Uh, so you know that that happens in war. Uh, but, but I keep coming back to the whole social media phenomenon. It's the same with the casualties. The, the claim that the Russians are suffering more casualties than the Ukrainians is simply not supported by social media because uh, you, you've got to be able to then argue that Russian parents, Russian spouses, Russian siblings, that they're not posting like Ukrainians are when they lose a loved one and when they go to the cemetery. And you know, we would have had the overhead image of the cemeteries, new cemeteries being built and expanded in Russia, which we have not had. But we, are, we do have for Ukraine. And even Ukraine's only announcement that they're building uh, a cemetery that can hold uh, upwards of 600,000 bodies. You know, mm, it's just, extreme. You know, just at least recognize what are some sort of objective data points you can look yes. at to, to have some idea of does this make sense with the narrative that's being told yeah exactly exactly yeah so yeah if if, if video and evidence of such things exist um i it does need to get out there but if it exists i really have to question why it's not out there um and so and also one thing about the 600k you know 600,000 uh dead is I think it was uh, Colonel uh, McGregor. I've heard this from a few different sources. I don't have the, the the source of it, but the people that I've heard talk about it is it's up to like sixty thousand amputees. Yeah, it's because because the Russians are darn good with those landmines. Yeah, you know, and that's really a that's a terrible tragedy too. And the last thing I want to ask you about is, and this is it's a big topic, but we can cover it quickly, and I'll let you go. Is just um. This is something I think is really overlooked. So I recently started to want to learn more about Bandera mm -hmm. because um, I really encourage people, if you haven't seen it, and if you have seen it, watch it again, watch Ukraine on Fire and learn a little bit about McGregor, Yellow, you know, about, about, right? yeah, the Oliver Stone, learn more about Bandera. I mean, um, make sure it's on YouTube. Make sure you buy the one that costs like two ninety nine. Make sure you don't get an edited one. There are some that have been really made janky online. So, pay, you know, pay for it. Um, make sure your source is good. But the thing is though, so I started looking at Bandera and it just seems to me it's something that is really missing that people I think need to grasp is that, um, Ukraine is no stranger to ethno-nationalism and ethnic cleansing. Right, right. You know, and so you've got Bandera, uh, Stefan Bandera, who, you know, did exist and is somewhat of a heroic figure there to, you know, some or many Ukrainians. And so when you look at his history, um, there's a big book on him that I kind of I want to get, but it's a little pricey, so I haven't gotten it. It's a big brick, um, but I hear it's very good. But I, I read the Wikipedia page about him, and I, I looked, at, looked for some articles and read some articles. I found you really have to search for negative articles on Bandera. 
Mm-hmm. You're, you have to look quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, he was working with intelligence agencies, you know, pre-war. He was down with the Nazis before World War II broke out. This is not really a nice guy. Um, and I, I mean, I don't even know where to start. It would take too long. But Bandera is not a good guy. He never was, you know, throughout his life, once he had the ability to do so, he was killing Jews and killing Poles, um, him and the organizations that he was a part of. Um, Ukraine is not a stranger to ethno-nationalism. Bandera is not a good guy. And ultimately, the Banderites, that being a follower of Bandera, to be like a Madera, I guess you would say, to be a Ukrainian ethno-nationalist is no different than being a, a Nazi, basically. Some say they're even more hardcore. Uh, and that spread to the West and to the East at the end of the war. And so it seems like even after World War II, you know, Bandera was used to, he didn't last very long, but to harass Russia by our intelligence agencies. I mean, I, I've only began to study him, but this is a bad guy. And... I just don't think that people understand the influence that it still has. And I hope it's a subculture of Ukraine, but this is involved in the big picture here. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, when you, when you look at Bandera, uh, his, uh, he had a, a radical view towards ethnic minorities. Yeah. Uh, he was willing to collaborate with the Nazis when it suited his purposes. Yeah. Uh, but he also separated with the Nazis at some point. Uh, but he was he was involved with leading efforts to kill Poles. Mm-hmm. The, the Volin Massacre, as it called it, yes. over a series of months. So massacred Polish women, children, uh, men, uh, all in the, in the pursuit of this nationalist vision he, pro- he proclaimed, which actually had no, no foundation in history. So he was, uh, he was sort, sort of trying to carve out a new reality. And uh, when, you, when you get down to what is it that uh, Bandera stands for, uh, it is not standing for looking to live in harmony with other people. It is very much that uh, we are we're a, a superhuman race, we're a superior race, and we must conquer and destroy those who are not, don't share our superiority. That's... You know, it was that kind of thinking that uh, made Hitler such a, a threat. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, Bandera and Himmler would have really gotten along. <laughs> yeah. I think they'd have been great drinking buddies. And the uh, Valien, I think it was, I forget the exact pronunciation, but that the was like Volen, 100K. Volen. The W-O-L-Y-N. Yeah, that was like 100K Poles, I think, that died. Yeah. You know, that... More Poles, more Poles died in that than were killed by the Soviets in the Katyn Forest Massacre. Yeah. And so, anyway, for people who might have interest, like, look a little deeper into, you know, the Banderite philosophy. And if you watch Ukraine on fire and look at the people who are carrying banners of him and some of the uh, neat insignia that they've got, um, I just don't see how that reality can be overlooked in this situation because it definitely plays a part. How much of a part? It's up for the individual to decide, but it plays a role. Yeah. Well, Larry Johnson, thanks for being on Radiant Creators. Once again, thanks for coming on. I mean, there's just so much going on here. You know, uh, a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge. You know, I I really think it's just important that – in every way possible, we just talk about the truth of what's going on because uh, it matters. You know, I, I was talking to some, gosh, as you get older, everybody seems like a youngster, you know, and I was talking to some, I was talking yeah, to some, it. yeah, I know. It's like, you know, I was, and what I'll say to some of the uh, youngsters that I know, um, I'll say, look, you know, you're the, you're just the right age to be drafted. I'm not. You know, and you have, you know, kids that eventually will be. This should matter to you. Yeah. You know, at least know what's going on and don't buy the ridiculous narrative because it's coming for you. 
very, very true. Very true. It's coming for you, you know. All right. Well, take care, Larry Johnson. Thank you so much for being on the show. I will send you a link to this when it's up. I'll send you the Rumble link. Okay. Sounds great. Thank That's you so great. much. Thank what you. Bye-bye.